Alright, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the, the Heart of Flesh podcast. Joshua is going to be gone again today, so I'll be finishing our discussion on canon by myself. And as we do that, I want to just give a quick recap. Um, throughout this series with, with our discussion on authority, um, with our discussion on, on canon and understanding canonicity, we've gone to great lengths to show um, that God's word, and especially how it presents itself, is not... Uh, the way that most people view it, um, especially critical scholarship and, and a lot of times people in general, it is not simply a human enterprise. Um, it is not simply the result of, of human works and, and human religion. And it does not rest on human authority. But the composition of God's word, the preservation of God's word um, rests well, further than that, and the authority of God's word rests on God's character. It rests on who God is. It rests on his providence, uh, on his ability to actually <coughs> author the Bible through the means of humans, to preserve it, uh, to expose it to the church. Uh, and it rests on God's purposes to save. It rests on God's purposes to save. When we read the Bible, we understand that God has purposes to save uh, and, and to save a people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, and all languages. And we understand that God has given his own son to accomplish this salvation. The second person of the Trinity has been brought into, into human form, entered into history, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, um, and, and offered a substitutionary atonement, offered to pay the price of sin, and in fact, did pay the price of sin in himself. God has, has left nothing back in order to save. Um, God, God is bringing salvation to the world. Uh, his, his own son was sent to accomplish that. And the death of Christ will not be one that was died in vain. Um, but Jesus paid for sin on the cross. And, and, and there will be salvation. God will accomplish it. And the means by which he's doing that is his word. His word is the instrument by which salvation is brought. The gospel is the power of salvation to those who believe. And as we read in Isaiah 55, God is sending out his word and he will accomplish that for which he purposes to accomplish it with. So it is not simply a human enterprise. It is a divine enterprise and it does not rest simply on man and on human authority and on human institutions, but on God and God's character, God's providence and his purposes to save. And when we, when we talk about the discussion of what that implies about canonicity and what are canonical books, we <coughs> critique the idea that, um, or the approaches to understanding canonicity that try to limit uh, the canon to a human enterprise. Um, we critiqued uh, the models for understanding canonicity that, canonicity that try to give an external authority uh, to, to some sort of community, whether it was the people of Israel, um, or whether it's the New Testament Church, and we, we talk specifically in that sense about the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and then the, the other one we critiqued, which, which is um, a, a better model than the other two, but, but the historical criteria model. Um, and that one basically saying, if these books written meet historical criteria, we, we consider them canon. Um, we have the ability to study history today, to look back on the, on on the books of the Bible, and we can be assured that they are canonical, and we can pronounce them canonical. Um, when 
in, in actual history, the way things played out, and the way God's word always intended to be, is it, it carried an inherent and divine authority in itself. And the books were under, understood to be God's word um, because they were self-attesting. They were self-attesting. They were they were based on on God's character, um, and they have internal components of self-attestation. One, and the first one we talked about in our other episode, is the character of God in providentially exposing his people to his word. God means for his word to be spread out to the world, and he means um, for his word to accomplish the purposes for which he sent it. And part of that is the establishment of the canon um, and the, the attestation of the canon to be his own very word. Uh, the next part we talked about was that were the divine attributes that are inherent in the canon. Uh, the word of God, as we read it and we study it and we come to know it, we see that this human authorship is simply not uh, a plausible explanation for the many divine attributes that exist in the Bible. Um, human authorship in the sense of soul human authorship. Um, but instead, it becomes quite clear that, that, that to make the best sense of, of the data... Um, that the Bible puts forward as we read it and study it, uh, the conclusion is quite necessary that, that God and men wrote, wrote the Bible, that the books of the Bible have divine attributes. Uh, and the last part we talked about was the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Bible talks about God's Spirit indwelling His people. Ezekiel 36 uh, speaks of, of the time when God would give His people new hearts and He would put a new spirit in them that he would sprinkle clean water on them, that they'd be washed clean, that he would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Uh, and that is a work of the Spirit of God, and, and God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's Romans 8. Um, and attests to us the divine qualities of God's Word uh, and the divine nature of God's Word. So those are... Um, very important internal components of understanding the canon. If, if we miss those, if we choose to, to, to operate from one of the other models that were presented, then we are misunderstanding where the authority of the Bible comes from and where the authority we have for canonicity comes from. And, and we are removing um, God's character. We are removing the characteristics of his word. We are removing the internal components of the canon that give us the greatest assurance that this is God's word. And few people <coughs> that I have ever met that lived Christian life or have lived it for a long time, um, if you really press them and you really got into their hearts of why do you believe that God's word is God's word, I don't think many people are going to give a historical, evidential answer. I don't think a lot of people would do that. What a lot of people would say is that when I read my Bible, when I read the Gospels, when I encounter the person of Jesus, it is clear to me that this is the very word of God and that this word has so profoundly impacted me. It has so profoundly impacted me that I have assurance and knowledge that I have been adopted into God's family that when I die, I will go to be with Christ and that I can stake my life on the promises of God in his word. So it is important that we understand where we are getting our, our understanding of canonicity from. 
and what authority we have for saying that. Um, all of that said, and all of the previous talk we've done in former podcasts, uh, we again, we do believe that historical evidence is important. <clears throat> we do not believe that um, Christianity is an unreasonable faith. Uh, we do not believe that we should not investigate historical things, um, but we believe that we should that we should, and we should discuss them and talk about them. So today, we'll, what I want to do today is go go through um, some historical evidence uh, for God's word, uh, for understanding the canon, for having assurance, um, added assurance uh, that this is in fact God's word and that we can trust it. So we're going to jump into that, and to do that, we're going to start with a little bit of of scripture. Um, I know that's a bit funny, but I want I want to make a point with this. We're going to look at Deuteronomy eighteen twenty through twenty two. We've talked about this uh, a little bit before. Uh, Moses is speaking to the people. He's promising that um, a prophet will come, uh, and there will be multiple prophets. Uh, the promise is that God will speak through through this prophet. Um, that God will put His words in the mouth of this prophet. That whoever does not listen to this prophet and the words that he speaks. On behalf of God, God himself will require it of him. And if we look at verse 20, um, God God gives a criteria for discerning true and false prophets. Uh, this is Deuteronomy 18.20. He says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So the point I want to illustrate in this, first of all, <coughs> is that that um, in the history of the Bible, in the history of, of God's people, understanding his word, they take very, they've taken very seriously what is God's word, it's always been seen as God's words, and they've taken very seriously what is classified as God's word and what is not. True and false prophets. In Deuteronomy 4.2, um, we see another command of God uh, talking about, about the books of the law, the, the first five books of the Bible. This is where we're at at this point in history. Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. There is a warning, and in fact, there is a covenantal curse against adding or taking away from God's word. God's word is seen to be incredibly important, incredibly vital. And as we read in Deuteronomy 31.9 as well, God commands that his word be recorded, um, that it be written down, that it be preserved, and that it be read publicly to the people of God. <coughs> and the New Testament writers also when they write letters, uh, in their epistles, they, at a few different points, they, they made commands that these would be publicly read. First of all, insinuating that their letters were on par with Scripture, but also communicating the fact that they are taken seriously, that they are to be read publicly, that they are not to be changed. So internally in the Bible, we see from the very beginning that these words are important. The integrity of these words are extremely important. Um, if we look at Jewish historian, first century Jewish his historian Josephus, um, Josephus was a Jew, like I said, in the first century. Um, he 
he's a bit of an interesting character. He doesn't seem to be extremely particularly Jewish. He seems more to uh, act like a secular historian than a Jew sometimes. Um, he, he does a lot of writing, but one of the things he says, uh, he says, how firmly we have given credit to those books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as either to add anything to them or take anything away from them or to make any change in them. But it becomes natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem those books to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them and if occasion be willingly to die for them. For it is no new thing for our captives, many of them in number, and frequently in time, to be seen to endure racks and deaths of all kinds upon the theaters that they may not be obliged to say one word against our laws and the records that contain them. So the point in, in, in illustrating this here is to show the seriousness with, with which God's people took God's word to be and the seriousness with which they understood the integrity of it. Um, the nation of Israel and Jewish life in general was centered around this revelation of God, completely centered around it. They were a theocratic nation, uh, such such as really there's no parallel in history. Um, they were a theocratic nation. Um, w uh, what theocratic meaning God as their king, quite literally, and they had human kings as well. But the authority for Israel and the thing that they centered their life around was the revelation of God that appeared to them in the Old Testament. And that is obvious historically. It is obvious um, internally in the Bible. And, and, it, and it becomes extremely clear and, and gives witness to how seriously these things have been recorded, preserved, and faithfully kept throughout time and that is <coughs> is also made manifest uh, in in the manuscript evidence that we have so as we as we discuss the bible um the bible is is a work of antiquity it it is there's many ancient writings um the books of the bible in times of antiquity before they had printing presses before they had computers even before they had modern books uh modern books like we know today were invented by by christians they were called Codex uh, or codices. Um, that is the format of the, of the modern book as we know it. Um, before that, they had scrolls. Uh, so the books of the Bible would be written on scrolls. Um, and a manuscript specifically refers to any handwritten copy of a portion of the Bible. Right? Any handwritten copy. So it was before the time of of the printing press, before typewriters, before computers, this was handwritten. They would write the books of the Bible and scribes would copy them over and over and over again and um, they would be spread. And they were very serious and very diligent about the integrity with which they copied them. And the interesting thing about the Bible as we look at, um, just historically, as we look at manuscript evidence um, for works of antiquity, and if we compare and we compare the Bible to other historical works, the Bible overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly dominates the ancient manuscript category. Uh, if we look at the New Testament manuscripts that we have in existence today, this is what we have in existence today. 
New Testament manuscripts, we have we have, we have around 25,000. We have around 25,000 copies, handwritten copies that are still in existence today of New Testament texts. Of the Old Testament, we have well over 40,000. So between the two, encompassing the whole Bible, the manuscript evidence, um, the existing manuscripts that we have today is somewhere around 65,000. We have somewhere around 65,000 copies uh, of portions of the Bible. That is extremely strong manuscript evidence. The next closest thing, the next closest work of antiquity, the next closest thing um, before the printing press, uh, before typewriters, computers, the next closest ancient work of antiquity is Homer's Iliad. And where the Bible has 65,000 manuscripts, Homer's Iliad has 2,000. And for other, um, for many other famous antique works of antiquity, um, if you think about the plays of, of Sophocles are, are famous, the writings of Plato, uh, those things. Um, actually, the Iliad even dominates them. Those things have around 200, 200 um, copies that are in existence today. So it 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 become it, it poses an interesting dilemma for liberal scholarship that really wants to be extremely critical of the Bible and wants to question um, whether or not we can we can know that it's God's word. Uh, they want to attack the foundation of the Bible. To do that, <coughs> to attack the foundation of the Bible, to insist historical error in the Bible would be to throw out every single work of antiquity that's in existence. If there is any sort of conclusion that insinuates that we can't know um, what the biblical text says accurately, uh, then we would come to the conclusion that we can't know anything accurately. Um, the Bible completely dominates uh, the the category of, of manuscript evidence and ancient works of antiquity. <coughs> and it's not just manuscripts of the Bible itself. Um, but another thing that works in favor of the Bible is there are also manuscripts of, of writings of church fathers, of... Um, church fathers writing sermons, writing commentaries, all sorts of things, where they are quoting from the Bible. So it's not just that we have manuscripts of the Bible itself, but we also have quotations. We have manuscript quotations from other people that are writing, and in their writings they are quoting the Bible. And this is very interesting. Even <coughs> even, even, some of the most liberal, liberal critical scholars um, will admit this point. So Bart Ehrman is, is a very famous New Testament scholar. He's extremely critical. He's always trying to attack uh, the, the points of Christianity, the foundation of God's word, the Bible. Um, he wrote a book along with Bruce, Bruce Metzger <coughs> trying to understand the, the textual evidence of the New Testament. And he makes this comment. And he is, a, he is again, not a Christian, not a not a believer, but an agnostic, um, liberal scholar. And he says this, and I quote, Besides textual evidence derived from New Testament Greek manuscripts and from early versions, the textual critic has available the numerous scriptural quotations included in the commentaries, sermons, and other treatises written by early church fathers. Indeed, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge 
of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. And think about that statement. If we lost every single manuscript of New Testament text, we could piece together the entire New Testament just on the quotations and the writings of early church fathers. That is remarkable. Um, Before the year 300 A.D., we have over 36,000 New Testament quotations before 300 A.D. Before 1300, there are over 1 million. So not just does the Bible absolutely dominate the landscape of textual evidence, but it, it, it even even in its even if you were to remove the manuscripts about the Bible specifically or, or the biblical manuscripts specifically, it would still dominate just in quotations, just in writings about the Bible. So if there if there is any book, any work of antiquity that we can be overwhelmingly according to historical cri- criteria standards, if there's any book that we can be sure of, it is the Bible itself. And not only can we trust that we have the Bible, that we have the right Bible, that we have a historic a, a historically accurate recording of God's word, but we can trust that we have a historically accurate canon, that the books in the Bible are the books that belong in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, we, we talked about this a bit in our, in our episode about authority, but these books were seen immediately to be functioning as God's word. They were received from, from the pens, uh, from the mouths of, of, of Moses, of Joshua, David, Solomon, the prophets, um, the, the people of God, uh, the leaders of, of of the of the community the, the the people of God and they were immediately understood to be God's word. But what that does not mean is that does not mean that <coughs> that there was immediately an an established canon or a collection of books. Everybody knew what those what those books were, um but in the in Old Testament history those books were ongoing. The, the Bible was written from f- about 1500 BC um, in the Old Testament to about 400 B.C. So as these books continued to be written, um, the books uh, that were understood to be God's word that came from the prophets of God were immediately seen as having God's authority and they were immediately considered to be Scripture. Right? They were immediately seen to be Scripture. And somewhere after the time that, that the last book of the Old Testament was written, um, you know, there's some debate about which one it might be. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are, are usually good candidates. Malachi uh, Chronicles goes up until about that period. It's somewhere around 400 B.C., a little bit before 400 B.C., or about 420 B.C. That's when uh, the last books of the, of the Old Testament were written. Um, and from that period, from that period, about 400 B.C. to the time of, of John the Baptist in the first century A.D., there was an understanding that that the pr- that prophecy from God had ceased. That that during that time called the intertestamental period, 
um, the prophetic voice was silent, right? Uh, and, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more um, later in the episode. But shortly after that time, <coughs> it was understood that um, the prophetic voice had ceased. Uh, and the, the canon as we know it today, the Old Testament canon as we know it today, uh, was began to be recognized in its in its complete form, right? Uh, the the Greek Septuagint um, is translated. The Greek Septuagint, um, or the original Old Testament Bible, was written in in Hebrew. The books were written in Hebrew. There's a little bit of Aramaic in there, but it's essentially entirely Hebrew. Somewhere around 250 to 200 BC, um, some Jewish elders, because of the Hellenistic influence in the Mediterranean world. Uh, the story goes that 70 Jewish Jewish elders, Jewish men, went into, they, they went somewhere, I think, I think something like a cave or something, and they translated the whole Old Testament into Greek, from Hebrew into Greek. Um, and, and it's actually likely that um, the New Testament authors, a lot of times they make reference to the Septuagint. Uh, the world, the world at that time, after Alexander the Great, had become very Hellenistic. The Greek language was extremely popular. Um, we see the New Testament being written in Greek, um, but somewhere around 250 to 200 BC, the 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 Greek Septuagint, which just means the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, is first put forward. And, and in that, in the Septuagint, it is the exact same books of the Old Testament that we would have today. The same books. Those books were clearly seen as, as they were um, first written to to have the authority of God, to have inherent canonicity in them. Um, and it was clearly refle- reflected shortly after the prophetic voice had stopped. Uh, all those books were seen in the Greek Septuagint. They were all understood to be God's word. Now, John the Baptist comes around in the first century. He breaks the prophetic silence. He makes announcements about Jesus. Of course, all of this foretold. Um, beforehand in the prophets, especially Isaiah 40. Um, <clears throat> and when John the Baptist comes around, when, when, when Jesus goes on his ministry, um, when the New Testament authors start writing, this is a couple hundred years later in the first century AD, it becomes extremely clear that they had a very good understanding of, of the Hebrew, of the Old Testament canon. They knew exactly all the books we have today, they knew exactly that those books were canonical, that they were considered to be God's word. And those books alone were considered to be God's word and to carry the authority of God. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. One place, uh, Jesus makes reference to this in Luke 24, 44 through 47. I'm going to turn there quick. So this is after Jesus has died. He is resurrected. Um, he is with his disciples in in resurrected form uh, in chapter Luke 24 chapter or verse 44 it says then he said to them these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be pu- must be fulfilled so it's important um, that is important because th- at Jesus time there was a clear threefold structure to the old testament the law the prophets in the Psalms. The law, of course, is, is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The prophets uh, included the historical narratives, um, Joshua, Judges, through Kings, um, Chronicles, uh, and then, it, of course, it included the 12 minor prophets, the three major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, 
and the Psalms is a way of accompanying all of the wisdom literature. So you have Psalms, Proverbs, um, you have Ecclesiastes, uh, you have the Song of Solomon. So, so within that threefold structure, first Jesus makes an appeal to that. So it's it's clear that this is understood in that day that the old Old Testament consists of this threefold structure, and that it's 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 final, it's closed. And this is a bit of a side note, but after Jesus has said, while I was still with you, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45 says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So in this statement, Jesus says that from the Old Testament, we can gather that the Christ would suffer. He would die, that on the third day he would be raised from the dead. And that following his resurrection and his ascension, that repentance for the forgiveness of of sins should be proclaimed in all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And in the book of Acts, that's exactly what we see. Starting in Jerusalem, the disciples go out, preach the gospel, and it is shared and, and going forth to all nations to all nations so not only does jesus look back um and see that the scriptures clearly predicted his life and it says he opens the minds of the apostles to understand what the scriptures said about jesus and then he tells them what will happen you will be my witnesses from jerusalem you will go and preach the repentance for the forgiveness of sins that will be proclaimed in my name to all nations. And, and that is what happens um, from there. So that's a bit of a side note, but we see clearly that Jesus understands uh, the Old Testament canon. He understands the threefold structure, and that was common in that day of referring to the Old Testament. Uh, there's another example in Luke 11:51. Uh, Jesus is, is talking uh, to, the, to the Pharisees. Uh, he is talking about uh, the Pharisees, and really, um, he is aligning them with those historically in Israel who had killed the prophets beforehand. Uh, if you know your Old Testament very well, you know that God sent these prophets to the people, um, and often these prophets would speak against the people. They would command repentance from God. They would stand against the evil and the wickedness um, that was going on in the nation of Israel, and these prophets, as you can imagine, were not very popular. They were not very light, well well liked. And as a result, um, many of them were killed uh, brutally. Uh, many of them were treated very poorly. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees of his day, and he's saying that, that, that the blood of all the prophets will be on them. For they are the same. He's aligning them with those people in Israel who have killed prophets in the past. And in chapter 11, verse 41, uh Actually, go back to chapter to verse 50. It says, So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And the reason this is important is because Jesus is talking about the prophets of the Old Testament, and he says, From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. The blood of Abel, of course, that's referring to the instance between Cain and Abel. That is in Genesis 4, um, Abel is really seen to be the first, uh, I mean, you you would really say martyr. Abel seemed to be the first martyr. He is killed 
um, for offering a better sacrifice than Cain. Cain's jealousy against him for for Abel's righteousness. He is killed. Um, and then, so that marks the beginning of the Bible. And then we move to Zechariah. And he is the last prophet of the Old Testament to be killed. And that is recorded in Second Chronicles 24-21. And that's sometime in that range of, of a little bit before 400 B.C. So Jesus sees essentially the prophetic prophetic voice um, from the beginning of the Bible as we know it today, uh, or from the, from from Genesis to that time period of sec- of Second Chronicles, with Zechariah being the last prophet, the last Old Testament prophet to be killed. And now, of course, later after Jesus says this, he will be killed. Um, the apostles will be killed at a later point, and there are many martyrs for the Christian faith today. But where Jesus stands in history, he looks back on the Old Testament, he looks back on the prophetic voice of the Old Testament, and he, in this, imp- implicitly and clearly confirms um, the canon that we have today and the idea of of the prophetic period and the prophetic silence. So, <coughs> and, and further than that, um, what, what gives us more clarity that, that this Old Testament canon is clearly understood is the New Testament author's usage of it. It's extremely clear by how much the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, that one, that they understand it to be God's word. Jesus also does this many times. They understand it to be God's word, and there's no discussion or there's no debate or dissension about what is God's word and what is not. It's clear, it's understood, it's implied. And the New Testament, as we flip there, there is very similar evidence of the New Testament writings. Um, if we look at Second Peter, I'm going to go to Second Peter chapter three. We're going to look at a few things there. Second um, Peter chapter three, two. First of all, Peter says um, to begin the ch- to begin chapter three. He says, "This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder." And in verse two, he says this that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. You shall remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And when Peter is doing this, Peter is quite clearly equating the apostolic witness, the message of the apostles. He's putting it on par with the holy prophets that existed in the Old Testament. And he's calling it commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. The apostles are mouthpiece, are the mouthpiece of God through the apostles. So it, it becomes quite clear in that sense uh, that Peter sees the apostolic witness, um, the, the, the message of the apostles, things that the apostles are writing as, as being scripture and, scripture, and he even sees a, a bicovenantal view of this. In, in the one sense, you have the holy prophets, you have the Old Testament, and then you have the commandment of the Lord through the apostles. And when I say bicovenantal, um, really what that means is there's the two covenants, um, which correspond essentially to the two testaments, or the old covenant, the new covenant. Um, and, and that's really what, what forms the basis of what we understand is the Old Testament and the New Testament. The words testament, the new, the words covenant are pretty similar. Um, so Peter not only sees the, the, the New Testament apostles as being on par with Scripture, but he also sees a bicovenantal view of Scripture itself, Old Covenant, New Covenant. And in the same chapter, verse 16, um, and we've talked about this before, but Peter refers to the letters of Paul, um, and I'll just quote it here. Uh, he says, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, 
As he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So at the time uh, of the writing of the apostles, even then it was understand and immediately received that these were the very words of God and that they belong in the Bible. The apostolic witness is very clearly seen that way and it was received that way by the church. Uh, the other example, uh, 1 Timothy 5.18, this is just evidence within the Bible itself that, that this is uh, the way things played out. Um, and we've talked about this one before, but 1 Timothy 5.18, I'm going to turn there really quick. Um, so Paul, Paul, he's quoting scripture. He says, for the scripture says, he's making an argument that's not important to us right now, but in verse 18 he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and, and more quotations, the laborer deserves his wages. The laborer deserves his wages. And we've talked about this before, but what's important about that um, is Paul is referring to these two statements as scripture. The first one is found in the Old Testament. I think it's in Deuteronomy somewhere. I can't exactly remember. But this, this quotation that Paul says, the laborer deserves his wages, he calls that scripture. And what's interesting is there is no, no exact quotation of that in the Old Testament. There's nothing similar. There's nothing in any other ancient work of antiquity. The only place that that phrase is found and it's found an exact match is Luke 10.7. So even <coughs> the writing of Luke, the apostolic witness, and Luke wasn't an apostle, but he was close with Paul, um, and he was seen as carrying the apostolic message, and therefore he was given apostolic approval. Uh, he wrote Luke and Acts, which makes up a very large part of the New Testament. Um, it is clearly seen and understood that what was being written is Scripture. That's what the New Testament says about Scripture, um, and, and we, we can we can understand quickly also from external evidence outside of the New Testament uh, that this was very quickly understood and received to be God's very word. Um, <clears throat> the first thing that we're going to talk about quick uh, is, is a letter. Um, well, actually, really, th all of this is going to be in the broader category. So when we look at the New Testament, there's evidence there. Um, there's the apostolic witness. Now, John is the last apostle that dies. It's somewhere around the end of the first century. Um, but, but much of the books were written between um, really late 50s A.D. Uh, to late 60s A.D. That's when much of the New Testament was written. Uh, John possibly being a, a little later with his gospel and, and, and revelation likely as well. Um, but after this, there is a period of, of church fathers, uh, of a lot of people who were leaders in the church at the very end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, and we retain a lot of manuscript evidence from them. And one of them that we're going to talk about here is, is and, and from this we can clearly see, we can clearly see how these writings from the apostles were viewed. We can clearly see how they were viewed, that they carried divine authority, that they were seen to be the word of God. So the first example we want to talk about is first Clement. Clement was a church father um, right about the end of the first century, writing probably around the late 90s, um, maybe at the turn of the century. But he mentions in his letter, he's writing a letter to the, Corinthi to the city of Corinth, the Corinthian church. Uh, he mentions letters from Paul and he calls them scripture. And he clearly understands that there's apostolic authority behind them. Um, I don't have the quote on me, but um, you can feel free to look it up. It's in first Clement. And he also, in that, he commands the public reading of Scripture. And he says, um, <coughs> he says, 
Actually, this is a direct quote. He says, To be sure, he sent you a letter in the Spirit concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos. So there's a few things in that. Clement, first, he clearly sees that Paul's writing, he calls it in the Spirit, and that's a common biblical term for understanding it to be inspired, meaning the Holy Spirit inspired Paul's writing. That, that means it is both God and Paul that wrote. God is primarily the author. And he says, be sure he sent you a letter to be sure he sent you a letter in the spirit concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos. Um, and if you know the New Testament well, you've probably figured out by now which letter that is. Uh, Cephas is, is just a Greek name for Peter. Um, and Apollos is another character that's mentioned a few, um, pretty rarely in the New Testament. But the place where they're all mentioned together really clearly is 1 Corinthians, the, the letter of 1 Corinthians. And interestingly, Clement, at this time, he's referring to Paul's letter as being scripture, being written in the spirit. Um, and he is writing to them to the city of Corinth. And he clearly has an understanding of the letter of 1 Corinthians, and he also assumes that, that his recipients do as well. So that that is a 1st century, early 2nd century. Um, you, you can see clearly both the doctrine of, of the New Testament writings being Scripture and the doctrine of them being inspired by the Spirit. That is clearly how they're received. Another example is the Didache. Uh, the Didache was a very late 1st, probably very early 2nd century document and it basically functions like like a manual or like an instruction manual for christian practices uh, essentially that's the idea um and it talks about the new testament writers being scripture being understood to be scripture um the the writer of the didache quotes the sermon on the mount from matthew's gospel he calls it a gospel uh, it is already understood that, that, that these things were being titled gospels that they display and portray the good news about jesus and further than that, the writer of the Didache, um, when, he, when, when he's writing and describing the commandments from the Lord, he quotes from Deuteronomy 4.2, um, which is the, the phrase that we read earlier, and, it's, and, it, and it said this, be careful not to add or to avoid from the commandments of the Lord. It's an inscriptural curse. Um, do not add or take away from these books. And we see that in, in many, we see that in, in, in the book of Revelation from John. We see a few, a few times different things like that in the Bible. Um, but the writer of the Didache is clearly understanding and, and putting the New Testament writings on parallel with the Old Testament and applying the, the covenant curse of Deuteronomy 4.2 to, to the New Testament writings. It's very clear that the early church received and understood the apostolic witness, the writings of the apostles, the books of the New Testament, to be canonical, to be God's very word, because they have inherent canonicity, and that we don't look back on them today and say, based on historical criteria or based on uh, the authority that the church has, we're going to call those books canonical. They were canonical from the start. They functioned with authority. Um, they inherently had canonicity and functioned as God's own word. Um, and, and at risk of belaboring this point too much um, i'm just going to make brief mention uh, there are very similar things found in the writings of ignatius and in polycarp uh, papias justin martyr these are all very early second century church fathers um, they they make clear clear references to the new testament being scripture um, very similar to the ones we've seen above ignatius who's who's really early second century he even indicates pretty clearly that there are a collection 
of Paul's letters, that there is a corpus of sorts, that Paul's letters are being gathered um, and being understood and seen as scripture collectively. And so with all of this, I, it seems pretty clear, not, not just from the internal evidence of, of the Bible um, and its self-attesting features, but also from historical evidence, we can conclude pretty clearly uh, that this is in fact God's word, that we have the right canon. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, um, and, and this raises questions when, when understanding canonicity, um, and it's it's been a the matter of much debate, um, but as, as many of you probably know, there, there is a difference in what is seen as canonical um, by Protestants and, and Catholics, essentially. Um, there are a number of books, I don't know the exact number of them, but they're referred to as the Apocrypha, which is a Latin word uh, that, that simply expresses the doubtful authenticity of them. Um, it's a Latin word, I can't remember what it means, something like the, the contested or the doubtful, um, etc. And the reason they're called that is because they're there, there is is debate about whether they belong in the canon or not. And the Roman Catholic Church says yes. Uh, the church historically um, and the Protestant church today very clearly has said no. And we're going to look at some evidence for understanding the Apocrypha and what it is. Um, and when we talk about the Apocrypha, specifically what we're referring to are, are the books included in the Catholic Bible. Um, and all of them were written during the intertestamental period. And I talked about that before. Um but the period between 400, 400-ish BC and the arrival of John the Baptist, it was very clearly understood that there was a prophetic silence, um, that the, the, prophet, the prophetic voice from God, the prophets of the Old Testament had ceased. Um, and, and then sometime later, and that was well understood, and then sometime later, really at the Council of Trent, um, and there was some debate about this beforehand, but it was, it was never any sort of serious debate in church history. Um, it was always p- pretty clearly understood what God's word was. Um, but as we get to the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church and, and, and the Catholic the Council of Trent is a counter-reformation council. It is in response to the Protestant Reformation against the Ch- Catholic Church led by uh, men like Martin Luther, by John Calvin, and by Ulrich Zwingli. And the, the Council of Trent was a response to that, and, and they... Um, the church put forth, among many other things, uh, they included officially um, the apocryphal books in the Bible, in, in the Catholic Bible. So there's been this this split since then. Um, so, and we're going to look at just some historical evidence about that. Um, the books of the of the apocrypha that make it up are First and Second Estrus, Tobit and Judith, uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, and Ecclesiastic Kiss, um, Baruch. The prayer of Manasseh, First and Second Maccabees, and, and they include additions to the Book of Daniel and Esther. So the first thing that we have to talk about when understanding these apocryphal books, um, it, it has been widely attested and seen throughout history. One that these books were never seen to be God's word; they never had inherent canonicity; they never had the authority of God's word. Historically, they were always understood to be um, helpful books. Uh, there are some uh, some things that we know about the historical period from them, like the Maccabean Revolution, um, but they were never seen to be on par with Scripture, and they never could carry divine authority uh, for the Jews or for the church. And as we talk about internal evidence, as we talk about um, the self-attesting characteristics of Scripture, what we see in the Apocrypha is that it does not meet those self-attesting characteristics. 
the Apocrypha includes much historical and geographical inaccuracies. Um, it, it conveys inaccurate things, which is at odds with the scriptural doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture. And, and we have to understand with this that, that God and, and the Bible claims to be God's word. Um, and it claims that God is truth. He is truth inherently that he cannot lie. Uh, so for there to be historical and geographical inaccuracies in his word would make, um, by implication, and, and clearly would make God to be a liar. Uh, so one, those things are out of line uh, with what is clearly understood to be scripture. And, and that is why historically they have not been included, uh, among other reasons. Uh, there are also sections of the Apocrypha that are very, very strange, um, that have very odd genres. Um, it, 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 it does not, when, when you read it, um, appear to be or to have any semblance to the, to the prophetic scriptures um, or even to the apocalyptic script scriptures of the Old Testament, um, things found in, in Daniel and Ezekiel um, and in Zechariah, but, but there are very, very odd other types of um, almost fantasy genre type of literature, kind of odd things. Um, and, and further than that is the Apocrypha and the books of the Apocrypha, and this is, is really important. Um, but in some spots, they teach things that are clearly out of line with the rest of Scripture. Um, they, are, they teach things that are clearly out of line with the rest of Scripture. Um, I can't remember which book it I it's in. I think Ecclesiasticus or one of the others, but there's a spot where it teaches um, that atonement for sin can be made um, by almsgiving by almsgiving, and that is essentially a source of, uh, or a type of indulgences, and, and it seems pretty clear that much of the reason that the Catholic Church included these books in its um, description, or in its canon, is because at the time there was great attack on the doctrine of indulgences that was going on in the Catholic Church, um, and they found in some of these books ways to justify, uh, one, indulgences, and two, um, there's one of the books that talks about prayer for the dead uh, and is often used by Catholics to describe purgatory. And what's important is that these things are found nowhere else in the Bible. They are found only in these spots and they are very out of sorts with what the scripture teaches. Um, this, the New Testament and, and the Old Testament, for that matter, puts forth a very clear doctrine about the atonement, about the atonement of Christ, about the atonement being the only method that pays for sin. That is the only way that sin can be handled is that it must be put on another person. The, 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 the New Testament and the Old Testament put together clearly a doctrine of substitutionary atonement and clearly put, put forth Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of the substitutionary atonement. And that is the only way that sins can be paid for. The idea of almsgiving um, as an atonement for sin is extremely out of line uh, with the clear biblical doctrine of the atonement and the last attribute that, that these books lack um is that they have no prophetic power in them um the prophetic voice that had gone on throughout uh, the history of the old Tes testament at many times <coughs> um had a prophetic voice first of all it had, had it came with a divine authority it said many many of the authors would say things like the word of the lord came to me um, and when they wrote and spoke they would say thus says the lord 
um, and they would say things about future events with divine authority. And they had prophetic power, um, and God gave them insight into what was to come, um, not just what was to come for the person of Jesus, for the nation of Israel, for the church, um, but what was to come sometimes in the world in general. And these books do not have that. Uh, further, as we've talked about before, <coughs> the New Testament authors, when they write, they understand what is the word of God and what is not. Um, and, and they make quotation of the Old Testament many, 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 many times. Everything they write is steeped in Old Testament. And they actually, the New Testament authors, make reference to every single book of the Bible uh, of of the 39 books of the Old Testament that we would consider to be canonical. There are over 290, close to 300, direct, direct quotes in the New Testament of the Old Testament. There is not one. There is not one New Testament author that makes one single quote to any single part of the apocryphal books, not a single one. But everything that the New Testament author has written is steeped in the Old Testament, is steeped in, in God's word. Um, and they directly quote every other book of the Old Testament, but they never once quote or allude to something from the apocryphal books. Further evidence, as, as we saw, uh, Jesus in his ministry, he refers to the Old Testament as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that had a clear meaning in his day. Uh, and it clearly represented the, the threefold structure of the Old Testament canon that we understand it to be today. Further than that, he refers, like we talked about again before, to the prophetic blood that was spilled that included the time period from Abel to Zechariah. Zechariah died around 420 BC, and the, the period of prophetic silence happens after them. The Septuagint does not include the apocryphal books. The Jewish Talmud, um, that, that is essentially a Jewish religious instruction manual that rejects the apocrypha that also refers to the fact that the prophetic voice had ceased during the inter intertestamental period um, these books were never seen as scripture by jews or or by the early church and uh, we've made mention to i've made mention to josephus um, earlier in this episode as well he has a quote about this um, about this intertestamental period um his quote, and, and and his quote, I quote him right here. It says, From Artaxerxes to our own times, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records. Because of the failure of the exact secession of the prophets, it is clear that there was a prophetic silence during this time, and that anything being written was not on par with the scriptures that had been recorded in the past that carried divine authority, that had inherent canonicity. There was widespread understanding that the prophetic voices had ceased during this time. And what's remarkable is that even in the Apocrypha itself, the writing, the writers of the Apocrypha didn't in, intend to be understood as scripture. And we can see that clearly when we write them. They, they, the writers of the Apocrypha understand that the prophetic voice had stopped. <coughs> Um, this is, and, and I'm going to go through a few verses here, uh, especially from the book of, of Maccabees. So if we look at 1 Maccabees 9.27, it talks about, um, well, this is just a direct, a direct quote of the verse. It says this, 1 Maccabees 9.27, So there was great distress in Israel. 
the worst since the time when prophets ceased to appear among them. The only period in, in the history of Israel when prophets ceased to appear among them was the intertestamental period between 400-ish B.C. and up to John the Baptist. And that's when Maccabees was written during that time. The author of Maccabees clearly understands, along with widespread belief in the nation of Israel, that the prophetic voice had stopped, that the prophets had ceased to appear among them. First Maccabees 4, <coughs> 45 through 46. And in this case, it's discussing... Um, the defiled altar. They're trying to figure out what to do. Uh, they, they, you know, there, there's, there's the Maccabean revolution going on at this time, um, and they're deciding what to do with uh, the altar that had been destroyed by Gentiles. And, and they decided, and this is the conclusion that they come to. Uh, in chapter 46, they decided that um, they would, they would tear down the altar so it wouldn't be a shameful reminder of Gentile destruction. That comes in, in a verse before. But in verse 46, it says this. They stored the stones in a convenient place on the Temple Mount until a prophet should arise who could say what to do with them. There is nobody. It, it's clearly seen that there are no prophets of God. There's nobody who has the prophetic voice of God at this point. That people are waiting for a prophet and there is none. There has been a prophetic silence. And First Maccabees 14.41, <coughs> direct quote, this is that Simon, Simon should be their leader and high priest until a trustworthy prophet should arise. Not just the external evidence, the external historical evidence, but the inter internal evidence of the Apocrypha itself shows that it's not and, and never was intended to be on par with the Old Testament scriptures or scripture in general. And what we should conclude about this um, and we, what we should see quite quite clearly is that these books are not canonical. They never had inherent canonicity. Um, they do not have the prophetic voice. They do not speak with the authority of God. Um, but they were in line somewhat with Catholic doctrine of indulgences uh, at a time when that was being challenged. And the Catholic Church included them in in the Bible Um and by so doing, represented quite clearly the point we were arguing against that the church does not give books canonicity, but books are canonical in themselves. Um, and in this sense, they have made a great error. Um, the question of what we should do with these apocryphal books, um, certainly they're, they're not all, you know, containing heresy and terrible doctrine there are some parts that uh could seem to be useful perhaps even for a christian today um but we must make the important distinction that they are never to be read on par with scripture they are not meant to be scripture um and never were intended to be so to sum uh this whole this whole episode this discussion on canon um again we want to talk about and i think we've highlighted the importance of inherent canonicity and the authority that the canon rests on, um, the role that God has played in establishing the canon, God's purposes to save, uh, and his purpose to use his word as an instrument to do so. And now we've, we've looked at some of the historical, uh, historic the historicity, the historical evidence of the canon. Um, we see that it is extremely strong, uh, confirming, confirming, uh, God's providence in composing it, preserving it, 
uh, and exposing it to the church. And we have great reason to trust and to know that this is God's word and that it forms the foundation for all of what we do. And it is the highest authority for how we live. So I just want to say thank you guys for listening. I encourage, again, um, you guys to study your Bibles, to be active in the church. Um, do not do not take media platforms, YouTube, uh, even a podcast, anything like that, uh, as your primary understanding of theology or your primary way of, of fellowship with, with God's people. It is vital that... Um, that you are participating in a, in a church, uh, one that understands that the Bible is the highest authority uh, and that preaches the biblical text. So I want to encourage you to, guys to do that. Thank you for listening today. Um, I'll see you again next week.